Hi, I'm Thomas Chatterton Williams. And I'm Jeff Chatterton Mauer. I'm a writer. And I'm a comedian. And we host a podcast called Wrong Think. More of a question than a comment. In addition to being more of a question than a comment, it is also more of a podcast we want people to know about than just two guys talking into a microphone for no reason. So we'd like to ask you to please subscribe to the show. If you like the show, please share it with your friends. If you don't like the show, then please punish your enemies by sharing it with them. And also please rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Grinder, we got a lot of listeners on Grinder. The Wrong Think Podcast. Thinking. That's not our tagline. Could be though, could be the tag. We'll talk about it offline. Thomas Chatterton Williams. Is it okay if I call you T-Chats Willie Town? I expect you to improve week in and week out. I want, I want to see some, you know, like we can start wherever, but I just have to see evidence of progress. So well, so is that a yes? I maybe take you're that just as a proving yes. that persistence pays and you're just going to wear me down. <laughs> okay, I won't call you that. TC Dubs, what is on your mind this week? What's Once going again, on? Once I'm, again, I'm thinking about debates over wokeness, not even the content of the matter, but just the terminology. A conservative writer, she seems nice enough. I know she's like, like a lot of us, she's become controversial online over the years and she's got her detractors and her points of view that drive people crazy. But interpersonally, I've only interacted with her online. Bethany Mandel, she seems like a nice enough person. And she went through the kind of experience that I think, uh, Anybody who speaks publicly or goes on stage live or goes on TV, I mean, can empathize with. She froze up pretty badly on uh, Brianna Joy Gray and Robbie uh, Soave's uh, rising. And Americans consider themselves very liberal and probably fewer of them consider themselves to be woke. And so, you know, when, when well, we talk about What does that mean to you? Right- could, would you mind defining woke? Because it's come up a couple of times and I just want to make sure we're on the same page. So, I mean, woke is sort of the idea that um, I, this is going to be one of those moments that goes viral. I mean, woke is something that's very hard to define and we've spent an entire chapter defining it. It is sort of the understanding that we need to re- to- totally reimagine and re- re- redo society in order to create hierarchies of oppression. Um, sorry, I, it's, it's hard to explain in a 15 second soundbite. Well, yeah, look, your it, time. So, you know, she, you, you catch her in the process. She's got a book that she co-authored that came out with a chapter devoted to critiquing wokeness. I'm also a critic of wokeness. It's a, a term I don't like to use when I'm critiquing the thing that it's applied to, but she's been critiquing it. She's been using the mm-hmm. But how would you define it? Go, go. <laughs> so how would you define the first it thing I, right now in exactly <laughs> 17 words? The first thing I do when I define wokeness is I say it's a disputed <laughs> term. And that's why I think it's not a useful term because there, there's a subtle... Yeah understanding of it and there's a common understanding of it and that works on both sides whether you're a critic of it or an adherent of it and so oftentimes people are talking past each other people are using it as a rallying cry people are talking about a set of values that they don't want to have locked down with a certain name if you're on the left if you're on the right it's a pejorative so i think it's actually Mm -hmm. counterproductive to making society Mm -hmm. better whether you're on the left or the right to rely on a kind of term that obfuscates more than it clarifies but this is the world we live in this is the term right. that uh, we're stuck with, uh, it seems. And, you know, if you do use it, um, then you want to be able to, whether you have a, a definition people agree with or not, you want to be able to have a definition. And so she, she was kind of in yep. the midst of talking about most uh, liberals wouldn't call themselves woke. And Brianna simply said, can we just pause for a second and define what you mean by woke so we're all on the same page? And then it was really, it was kind of painful sputtering and, you know, disintegration where at one point Bethany acknowledged that this is one of those moments that's going to go viral. And it really did. Yeah. Which guaranteed that it would Um, go viral. If there was any chance before she said that, that it was not going to go viral, that chance went by the (laughs) wayside. When you, when you, yeah, it's the Barbara Streisand effect. I've also been um, a victim of this as well. When you draw attention to the thing that you want to cover up, it's not going to. Oh, and by the way, speaking of the Barbara Streisand effect, her book, uh, not Barbara Streisand's book, um, Bethany Mandel's book, is now in the New York Times bestseller list because this book, because this clip went viral. So in the end, she's kind of going to win this. 
Maybe I'm the one who's the fool here. Maybe at the end of the day, Donald Trump is the only person that ever understood media and you just want to get your name out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, look, if she did orchestrate this, which she clearly did not, maybe she is a, uh, a genius playing three-dimensional yep. chess, yes. right? Because I certainly didn't know. Who, I, I never heard the name Bethany Mandel before the other day. I saw everyone dunking on her on Twitter. I watched the clip and I... I did just, as you said, anybody who speaks publicly has frozen. I have frozen on stage. I've forgotten jokes on stage. I've been in the middle of a joke and then realized, oh, I don't know how this goes anymore. I haven't told this one in a while. So on a human level, I just had empathy for her because she very clearly got brain lock. I don't know if it tells anything about, people are dunking on her going like, even people who write about wokeness Mm -hmm. can't define wokeness. Like, I don't know. Some people define it. I also don't use the term if I can ever avoid it, because it is so vague, because it is so fuzzy, people on the right absolutely just use it as a proxy for like Mm -hmm. political attitudes I don't like. And then some people on the left will use it as a proxy for just like good stuff. Generally, it's so fuzzy, even fuzzier than the other terms we use. Absolutely. And there's a kind of thing that happens on the left, a kind of uh, disingenuous game. And this is what frustrates uh, critics of wokeness where unlike socialism in the past or other movements, communism, the left has a kind of menu of, uh, the far left has a kind of like menu of values or, or goals or attitudes that it refuses to apply a common term to so that people can effectively debate them. And it's not completely accidental or that's how it feels yeah. from the outside. And so every time you try to name this thing, they say, that's not what we're doing. That's not what we believe. It's something else. But the, the, Please articulate what it, that yeah. thing is that's happening everywhere in every institution that we're, we're suffering through. So that yeah. is a valid critique of, uh, of the idea of wokeness from the people that just want to say, I don't care what you call it, but slap a label on that thing because we need to talk about what's wrong. <laughs> yes. But if you're going to call it wokeness. Yes, absolutely. I thought Freddie DeBoer had the mm-hmm. uh, definitive article on this, which I've called it up while you were talking. It is titled, please just fucking tell me what term I'm allowed to use for these sweeping social and political changes you demand. Which I, I think the title says it all. I think that captures what Valid. a lot of us are feeling. Yeah, just give but it a when name. When you do give it a name, you need to be able to say what you're talking about. And so, I, I mean, at some point, <laughs> Bethany gathers herself enough to say that um, it's essentially an attempt to redo society into hierarchies of oppression. Not a satisfactory um, description of what wokeness is, but also not completely without logic. I mean, it is always looking at social interactions and institutions through the lens of oppressors and oppressed and with a kind of implicit goal of mm-hmm. um, bringing into alignment those two groups through equity initiatives, affirmative action, whatever, you, what have you. So she's not completely wrong. That's just not enough of an answer. Right. And what got me and what we're really talking about here is what's irritating you this week. What got me is this kind of constant thing you see when you observe when you're neither aligning yourself with the left or the right, and you're just kind of in the middle trying to be as reasonable as any of us can in good faith. This horseshoe thing that happens where when she finally addresses what happened, I retweeted this. I didn't want to pile on and I still don't want to pile on. I mean, I, I, I really hate the feeling of freezing up. I'd rather be Literally, I've been fistfights and I've frozen up on stage in front of 500 people. Uh, and I prefer to be punched in the face than to freeze up on stage in front of 500 people. Those are two, just for clarity, those are different yes. incidents, <laughs> though, correct? Yes. You, okay. All right. It wasn't some TED Talk gone horribly wrong where in minute five you froze and then in minute seven you were in a fistfight. No, so I don't have direct incidents. comparisons. There was some time between the two, but I would prefer to just take that punch rather than... I would agree with that. I have frozen on stage... I have uh, almost cut my pinky finger off with a chisel. I'd say they're about the same. They're about the same. What I don't agree with, uh, and then not to beat a dead horse, but Mandel gets on Twitter the next day and she says, you know, not to make any excuses or whatever, but a bit of a backstory. Just before we went on air, Brianna Joy Gray was on a hot mic. I heard her demeaning parenting in general in colorful and nasty terms stating parents only have kids in order to perpetuate their own narcissism. Robbie responded, there are some good ones and some bad ones. As a mom of six, including a newborn, this threw me off just a bit. Not an excuse, just a reality. I'm human. That really rubbed me the wrong way, especially coming from a conservative, self-described critic of wokeness, because sounds dangerously close to me, like the reasoning behind microaggressions, trigger warnings, and safe spaces. She's saying that somebody else simply talking about a category she identifies with 
parents, which is the hell of a lot of the planet. That's not even a niche category. She's saying so mm-hmm. set her off, triggered her, put her in a state of feeling microaggressed that it affected her performance when she had to do her work. What is that if that's not somebody saying, I can't take a test because the culture constantly microaggresses me? I, I would have to re- throw that logic out. Yeah. And even if you're feeling sorry for yourself, you can't reach for the same exact tools that the people you profess to dispute also utilize in situations you don't agree with. <laughs> it almost sounds like you're uh, saying that perhaps the logic on all sides of this discussion is not, is not and impeccable. It, but it actually forms uh, a issue when these people like actually end up making the same arguments, but they think yeah. it's right for themselves, but not for the other. And I'm just... It is. It was. Well, it's it's yes. excuse making, isn't it? It's excuse making. Oh, I couldn't. I couldn't do it because this happened. And I want to be perfectly clear at something about something. I did not have my son to perpetuate my own narcissism. I had him so he can do chores for me when he's older. All right. I don't want to mow my own lawn. Should we talk about other yeah. stuff? Because we got a lot to talk about. A uh, lot going on this week. We're gonna things coming up on this podcast. We are going to try to quantify just how much the Oscars suck. That sounds like a challenge. We are going to try to figure out if Ron DeSantis's thoughts on Ukraine are about the war in Ukraine or about uh, the war against Trump, who he's going to take on in the primaries, almost certainly. And we're also going to talk about how top universities are deciding to admit the next generation of overly ambitious twerps without the SATs. But first, let's talk about the big story of the week, Silicon Valley Bank. Thomas, how much of your money is in Silicon Thankfully, Valley. Thankfully, I have spent all my money. I've spent all my money. You spent all in the past year. That's the smart financial decision that people like Sue Zorman just won't that. talk about. As soon as it comes in, right back out the door. Just spend it on anything. Just run to a boat store, buy a jet ski. Drugs are always great. Get yourself a couple prostitutes. Just as just the second it comes in, goes straight back out. You are never susceptible to yeah, a market I'm, crash. I'm, I'm, I'm market proof. I, I mean, I'm renovating an apartment. I, like, if you want to just not have money, not worry about losing money, your contractor will just call you up and tell you a figure that astonishes you after you agreed on a figure and you still want your kitchen done. You have to pay it. So, <laughs> so I have lost not a penny in the market. Yeah. <laughs> Good work. I Now, personally, I have half of my money in a mayonnaise jar I buried down by the creek and the other half in a pickle jar by the old oak tree, because that's what we call portfolio diversification. So I am also safe. But let's talk about this. So the interesting thing that happened is Silicon Valley Bank went under. The Biden administration is now saying nobody who deposited money at this bank is going to lose this money. Even if you are over the $250,000 FDIC insurance limit, you are not going to lose your money at the bank. They are either going to find a buyer for the bank or through extraordinary measures that I don't totally understand. They are going to find a way to make depositors whole. Not the people who ran the bank. People who ran the bank are screwed. They are going to, they had shares in the bank. Those shares are worth nothing. They are going to lose their jobs. They're not getting bailed out. But depositors are going to be made whole. And I feel like I fear what this is going to lead to is a debate that will last from now until Election Day 2024 about was this a bailout? We're just going to be debating, as just as we debate the word wokeness, we're going to be debating the meaning of the word bailout. Oh, God, you just gave me a flashback of Benghazi or something like that, where it's just going to never, never going to stop <laughs> hearing bailout, yes. you know? And I don't know. I'm not uh, a libertarian. I would certainly like lower taxes, but I like living in a society where if shit goes off the rails and it could effectively ruin people's lives far down the chain from the people that are actually responsible, that the government can step out and sometimes bail things out, even if some people who have a lot of money and you might not like also end up benefiting from that situation. I just like having some safety measures in place. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, also this was like, I noticed a journalist on uh, on Twitter, Eric Levitz, I think is his name of uh, New York Magazine, was noting that like, you know, he's just a journalist. He didn't have anything to do with Silicon Valley Bank, but his the parent company of New York Magazine, Vox Media, banked at Silicon Valley Bank. And so if they actually yeah. did lose their money, it looked like, you know, all the way downstream to just like random journalists uh, employed by a company that kept <laughs> kept its assets in Silicon Valley Bank would lose our jobs. So that can't be like a good solution. So yeah. thank God we have a government that uh, steps in in those you know extreme circumstances. I, I agree. I think this is the right thing to do. I mean, you know, I'm I'm far from an, from an expert on banking regulation, but I my layman's instinct is that this is the right thing to do, L- largely because they are trying to make sure there is no panic where other people who bank at mid-sized banks yeah. will think, "Oh my God, my bank's about to get under, go under. I got to get my money out right now." 
hence causing other bank runs. They are trying to head this off at the pass. At the moment, this seems to be contained. It's just at the moment, Silicon Valley Bank and, and one other, whose name I forget. And yeah, it, I, I don't. I think as a principle, you shouldn't make policy right. out of spite, right? That should not be your motivation for policy. So I, I do think some of the people who feel like, just let them go under. They made a bad decision. Let them go under. And again, it's not the bank that's going to be saved here. It's the depositors. I think that's a bit of a spiteful opinion because there are a lot of people downstream, like the people you just talked about uh, at New York Mag, who would be facing big problems or the people who deal with some of the businesses that banked at Silicon Valley Bank who would be facing vendors, problems, you know, the various vendors, contractors, all the way down to you know the person who vacuums the carpet in the building. And I also think it's, it's reasonable. When you put money in a bank, let's be honest, none of us do a ton of due diligence. None of us are like cracking open the bank's books and thinking, well, I'm, that's not how I would have invested that money. <laughs> like I have put money in a bank because it was the closest that's, that's one to my house. That's how we all do our banking. <laughs> and how we all do it. So I, yeah, so I don't see the depositors at Silicon Valley Bank as like greedy bad people. I think there's people depositors. who use the bank. Yeah, I see right? the I see the people running it as potentially suspect. But I don't know, like Credit Suisse, a big, yeah. huge, important bank, had to be bailed out by the Swiss government just uh, this week for to the tune of fifty four billion dollars, fifty four billion dollars, fifty billion uh, Swiss francs. I mean, that's enormous. But sometimes, you know. Mm -hmm. The system falling apart. I remember 2008. I mean, that was the first time I lost all of my money, uh, you know, trying to buy an apartment. And at the exact time, trying to close a mortgage as a young guy, using all of my savings at the exact time that Lehman mm -hmm. <laughs> collapsed and, uh, and really getting caught up in something I had nothing to do with and just getting harmed in a way that, you know, I'm not here to complain. People got harmed a lot worse. But, you know, yeah. anything that can be done to mitigate the harm that happens to all types of people just trying to live their lives, trying to support their kids, trying to eat. I mean, I'm for that, even if some kind of nasty operators uh, get away with a bit of irresponsible actions in the process. Yeah. I'm not even sure how much it was irresponsible versus just like dumb. It didn't work out. I mean, I just made a joke about portfolio diversification, and it seems like that is the thing they did not do because they had all their money in uh, fixed rate treasuries, or most of their money in fixed rate treasuries. And then the value of those treasuries went down when interest rates went up. It has been funny to me how much everybody is trying to blame the they thing are, they already that's the disliked for this collapse. It's like the second people heard Silicon Valley Bank, there were some people on Twitter who went, crypto, this is a crypto thing. And believe me, look, I love bashing crypto. I, I think crypto is uh, mostly, not entirely, but mostly a joke. And uh, I would love to blame this on crypto. It's not because of crypto. Uh, some people have been trying to blame this on wokeness, the New York Post <laughs> yeah. and an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. They're trying to blame, well, yeah. They're like, oh, the bank had DEI initiatives. It's like, oh yeah, it had DEI initiatives. That doesn't mean that the initiatives. That was my favorite. Led to uh, that was my favorite failure. pet issue <laughs> to blame the collapse on. Oh, this is this is because of wokeness. That's not to beat this dead horse, but please, we have to get new language. We have to get new terms. It's, it's unfair. Yeah. I thought it was a downright funny attempt to blame it on wokeness. The the tone of that op-ed to me was like <laughs> wokeness. Like, can we? Can I make this dog hunt? Is this going to work? What if I float this? It didn't really take, I don't think. Let's have a moratorium on blaming anything on a word called wokeness. Let's just have a moratorium. Let's, right. let's come together. Or that nobody can define people who think it's good cannot define, define it, it or, or else it's won't it's define bad it. And people who think it's bad can't define it. Trade hardcover books on the subject can't define it. Let's just let's have a moratorium on this, yeah. on this goddamn word. <laughs> Yeah, and especially in reference to a bank failure, which is already complicated enough. It's plenty complex. Well, here's Let's the thing, you know, as you guys are talking on a podcast, you know, to the nobody understands anything. Nobody, the bankers don't understand a yes. lot. You know, I was just recently talking to one of the most famous and probably influential economists of his generation. Uh, not somebody I know, but I, I close enough physically to him to ask him some questions. And I left thinking, God, nobody knows anything, man. Some people just have a lot more sophisticated vocabulary and terminology and experiences to employ. But in complex systems like banking, in trying to diagnose social phenomena like wokeness, we're all trying, I hope, to make good faith attempts to understand what's going on. But people trying to act like they can explain to you what exactly is going on in crypto or with yeah. you know credit default swaps and things like this. We need humility. Yeah. 
And I say that as two guys just, you know, talking about banking yeah. <laughs> who, are, who, are, who are definitely in need of humility talking about that subject. Well, uh, well yeah, and, and I, hope, I hope we didn't say too much. You know, I hope we uh, were very clear about our shortcomings in this area. Because I agree, there are just some systems, certainly economics, which is, you know, that's, I, I've dipped my toes in these waters. I, I always point out on my blog, I, I'm not an economist, <laughs> I'm an economist. I studied it. I know of it, but I don't have a PhD and I don't study it presently. But economics, it's just too big. These systems are just too big to get your head around. That's why nobody can beat the market. It's just too big of a system to get your head around. Weather would be another one. So many things, as much as we can figure out, and you know, we know a lot more than our ancestors, but these things are just too big for any one person to have in their brain. And uh, certainly the people at Silicon Valley Bank thought they knew what they were doing, but guess what? They did not. Even though I'm sure they spent their whole careers in banking. People mess this stuff Absolutely. up. I mean, that's the, yeah, that's the thing. Is like you, you, one thing you can count on is that people are going to keep messing up that thing they've spent their whole career doing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're messing up this podcast right now. <laughs> yeah, so my, there. My proves, career our, <laughs> proves our point. Yeah. Speaking of people not knowing stuff, should mm. we talk about college kids? People who think they know a bunch of shit, but actually don't know anything. Can we talk Please, about college I, kids, if that's okay? And you are a yeah, college professor. I'm also somebody that so, no, I, I have a lot, I have a strong view on on, on the issue I think you're headed towards about uh, Okay, well, it is going to be the issue you think I'm headed towards because we talked about it before the podcast. I think it's okay to tell people that. I'm not actually surprising you with these topics. The SAT and the ACT, Columbia University and William & Mary College are effectively ditching the SAT and the, SA and the ACT. They are now test optional, which means you do not have to submit your SAT or ACT score with your application. You still can. This is a policy that a lot of universities went to during COVID. They said during COVID, well, this is temporary. It's a temporary measure that we're doing because of COVID. Of course, the SAT and the ACT are criticized heavily by many people. The most common criticism is that the test scores are stratified both by race and by income. A lot of people don't like the test. And one assumes, though we're you know forced to guess, but one assumes that this is largely behind the policy of Columbia University and William & Mary becoming test optional. Thomas, what do you think about so, this? So I actually feel very strongly about this. I found myself once on NPR debating the head of the college board a few years ago when they made a can I interrupt? Is this one? Is this when you froze and then somebody punched you? Is that this? Is this that appearance? No, I didn't freeze. In this, I, I, I was, I was pretty uh, astonished, um, and I was kind of. <laughs> and nobody hit you. Ira Glass didn't clock you across no, the jaw. No, everybody was uh, physically restrained. <laughs> but um, okay, sorry, sorry to interrupt. I, I, I was wondering if you were calling back that uh, incident. But sorry, sorry to interrupt. You were on NPR, and you were saying. I was um, debating the head of the college board, David Coleman, a few years ago when they, f when they first rolled out the kind of the, the adversity dashboard that was to be taken into account. So, you know, they were going to try to standardize, measure how much hardship any given test taker has had. So they, they add that to your actual merit-based score so that you can kind of readjust uh, so that admissions officers can have more criteria to take into account than how a student does on the test. So I objected to that off of the fact that I don't think you can measure people's adversity necessarily. I don't think you can standardize how hard mm -hmm. or painful a life mm -hmm. has been. I think that some poor people have advantages that some rich people don't have. I think there's lots of complexity and granularity in human lives. Uh, but, you know, this was part of this march towards devaluing the idea of merit itself, which really ratcheted up after COVID, after the racial reckoning of 2020. And there have been explicit arguments that the idea of merit itself is functionally racist. And so the position I've always felt very strongly attached to as a descendant of uh, African slaves in America who did not come from wealth, but whose parents really drilled into me that you can control your effort, you can control how hard you work, that the SAT was really when I couldn't control how good my high school was, couldn't control that I had no network capital around me. <laughs> I had never met somebody that went to Harvard. Uh, I had never met somebody that worked for the New York Times or anything that I could want to do. I hadn't, I had no social capital, but I did have this kind of capital that my parents gave me, which is that, you know, you are your own capital and you will take this test. Your school sucks. They don't even offer AP exams. You haven't had a lot of chances to do extracurriculars, but you can go and you can do really well on an SAT test, and then you can take that to a college and you can show that you deserve to be there. 
And so for me, the SAT is really, you know, that type of standardized test is the best tool that poor and disadvantaged and minority students have. Obviously, this is the case because poor Asian students and other uh, ethnic minorities have utilized standardized testing to dominate. They're kicking They're ass. Dominating They're upper class ass. whites. Let's be frank. In any type of yeah, you're yeah. kicking my ass. Any in competition yours, yes. that allows for standardized <laughs> merit-based screening. So the idea that you're going to get rid of this and that's going to make it more equal or fair, I think, is a joke. It's going to make it a lot easier for rich kids that have the right uh, intangibles to get into schools that they already feel entitled to be in, without mm-hmm. having to go through uh, the charade of pretending to, you know, care about the standardized tests. You know, it's going to be easier for schools to tell Mm -hmm. Asian Americans who they've been trying their best to lock out by basically demanding Asian applicants have a few hundred points higher of an SAT score than 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 comparable applicants of other ethnicities. They're just going to be able to tell them that you lack personality Mm -hmm. in your in your essay. I mean, we're going to get essays of um, we're going to get gorgeously written essays of 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 human striving written by Chat GPT. I mean, all of these, this is going to be a nasty world that is not actually going to be made more fair. (laughs) I really feel strongly about it. Yeah, I do. I wonder what chat GPT is going to do with the essay. I have long felt, and I I actually wrote about this in Persuasion, that the essay, of all the components of the college packet, the essay is the worst one. Because it's just a bunch of bullshit that your parents wrote. As an essayist, I fully agree with you. Okay, okay, thank you. And it's either your parents wrote it, or the person your parents hired to write it, wrote it. There are uh, tutors who specialize in this, and they can make your essay a lot better. And what is that if not access to something that that you will have if you are upper middle class or outright wealthy that you, you're not going to have if you're poor? It becomes the kind and of I, I um, in- contest to, to uncover the worst thing that's ever happened to you and to hone that into, into a piece of testimony. Uh, which I think is also a bad incentive that if you can just find a really bad event, you can then bring that to, you know, um, the stewards of really, you know, wealthy institutions who will shower you with a little bit of grace and largesse, as opposed to just working really hard, taking a test and showing along with like your record of grades over the course of four years that you're competent and should be there. I mean, of course, there's other there's other factors to take into account, but the idea that you can get away with standardized measures of competence and that you can be f- more fair is hubristic. It's ridiculous. I think it's, uh, it's absurd on its face. Yeah. There's a really good essay, uh, guest essay in the New York Times from 2021 called When I Applied to College, I Didn't Want to Sell My exactly. Pain by Elijah Meganson. He gets to this, oh shit, it is a P, right? Elijah? I, <laughs> Elijah Meganson gets to this idea of selling your pain, which is what you're talking about when somebody is trying to factor in a hardship metric. And by the way, when you say have a hardship metric in the packet, my brain does go, okay, what's that about? Because I do understand. And it sounds like you and I have very similar backgrounds too. And that like, I went to like Mm -hmm. a very whatever public school in a very whatever place. It was certainly, you know, not like the school (laughs) from the wire. But it was also not a school. It's also not a school where everyone. I, I'm like mm-hmm. you. Like I didn't know anybody who went to Harvard. I didn't know anybody who worked for the New York Times or anything like that. Uh, it, it was. It's just like not done. Everybody in my high school went to the Navy because it's the Norfolk area. So I understand, and and I also understand that so many people had it so much tougher than my situation. I understand the impulse to say, okay, let's get something into the essay that does measure, yeah, like how hard your life is. Like I get that impulse, but I also do feel, as it sounds, you do that. Just how are you going to measure that? How are you going to measure that? It is true that being, if if you're from a poor family, okay, well, then you didn't get to hire the SAT tutor. You didn't get to hire the essay tutor. You didn't get to hire the math tutor when you were having trouble in algebra or whatever. But maybe your parents loved you. Maybe maybe you actually had a great family life. And you can also be from a wealthy family where your parents are fucking nightmares and don't act like we haven't met that family as well. So yeah, a hardship metric, it is like, boy, it sounds tempting. I'm not totally sure how you do that. And you don't want people trying to market their pain as like, this bad thing happened, therefore I should. That's right. I mean, one of the first things I realized when I finally got to a fancy school for undergrad was that some of the worst things that I ever heard happening within a family or to an individual were from people that from the outside were, were 
quite extraordinarily privileged. I'm talking about like people dying, people being assaulted, like real yes, it, serious emotional abuse, coldness, lack of love and support. I mean, I had never seen that around some of my friends who were economically disadvantaged to the extent I saw it around some of the wealthiest people I've ever met. So I just don't know. I'm not saying that all things considered, it's not an advantage to be wealthy, but I am saying that I don't know how you can put that into a dashboard, get rid of the SAT, <laughs> and make a more fair entrance process. Um, yeah. And, you know, this argument that's been floating around that the, the, that the school board um, of Lowell High School in San Francisco brought forth uh, the, the year after the racial reckoning, and that was quickly done away with last year, this idea that merit itself is racist. I think that that's one of the most insulting things I've ever heard as a non-white. It's sick. It's sick. It, I think that's a sick point of view. Yeah. I think that's sick and condescending. I think that's a sick condescending that liberals, the thing that liberals do is, uh, it, it, there is the implication that like it, we just, they can't, I don't know. That's the thing that I always hear sometimes when liberals go on these diatribes about how merit is racist. Oh, they can't, they can't do it. We have to lower the standards. It's, I find it sick. I find it insulting. I find it fucked up. And I, and I, guess I don't think you're it's not true. Gonna... As you pointed out, Asian Americans are doing great on these yeah. tests. <laughs> I think that's because a lot of Asian American kids grow up in a family where they say education is priority. Education is important. You should study up and do um, this test. Our friend, our mutual friend, Coleman Hughes, pointed out a few years yeah. ago, there was an article in the New York Times about the standardized testing in New York City that, that screens students for the, for the real good public schools like Stuyvesant and Bronx Science and Brooklyn Tech. And he pointed out that it was not at all a thesis statement in the piece. It was just a throwaway sentence where the reporter said, you know, these schools are dominated by uh, Asian American students, often first generation, you know, living in Queens and places like this, and they go to cram schools. And then the, the journalist wrote, oftentimes these classes are paid for by families skipping meals. <laughs> and it's like, wait a minute. Okay. Okay, so it's, not just money. it's not just money. Something's <laughs> going on. Not, yeah. If you're skipping meals, one assumes one yeah. assumes you are not wealthy. Meals, that's a choice. That's skipping not an meals. ideal society where people choose between meals and getting their kids necessary preparation or what they see as necessary preparation. But that is something more interesting going on than a discussion about privilege. And and we have to be able to talk about that. And if you say that certain people mm -hmm. in perpetuity cannot be expected to meet certain standards that other people do meet routinely, then you're basically saying that equality is impossible. And you're, and that's, you're giving the game away. Yeah, which is the part that I think is fucked up yeah. and condescending. Yeah, I think that's fucked up and condescending. And I think it should also not be lost in this discussion that grades are stratified oh by God, income yeah. and by race. There's So you're getting rid of one metric under the justification that it is stratified, and you are therefore emphasizing another metric that is also stratified and other things that I, the essay, another part of the packet, which I think is subjective and dumb. The, uh, the recommendation, which is another thing. It's like you're, you're rewarding extroverts. And that's really, that's where I draw the line, <laughs> rewarding extroverts. I'm a committed introvert. I feel like my people are being discriminated against when you give more weight to the you, recommendation. Would you say that if you heard someone was giving a lot of weight to the recommendation on a hot mic before an interview that you might, you might collapse as somebody who identifies? <laughs> well, I, well, I wouldn't give the, I wouldn't give the interview Thomas because I would be curled up in a ball in a corner of the room, rocking back and forth and sucking my thumb. How am I supposed to, supposed to withstand such a horrible statement. I can't be expected to do anything for like a week. Someone who identifies as a non-recommendation so gatherer. To hear that talk? Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. I just am that fragile. And, and, and frankly, I'm feeling a little attacked right now. Frankly, Thomas, cool. I'm feeling a little microaggressed by you. You said an interesting thing that I don't want to get lost here, which is you, you said, and, and I hope I'm getting the words about right. I hope I'm paraphrasing correctly. If I'm not, tell me. that you, th you thought the SAT was maybe, you said like the best or the most important component of the packet? It was the only one that was... It was, than grades grades were not fully under my control in certain ways. I mean, I can even say that I think that, yeah. you know, I had, um, I'll, I'll be completely honest. I dressed um, in certain ways, especially that I think in the 90s signaled to my white teachers that I was part of a kind of oppositional culture. And I think they made, they made judgments about my competence based on the slang I used, uh, based on how I dressed, based on who I socialized with. 
that they could bring to a larger assessment of how capable I was when they had subjective measures of grading my work. I did pretty well on grades, but all of these things mm -hmm. came into play. None of that comes into play on the SAT test. I simply answered questions that I had prepared for, and it was, that was the most control I could exert over how I would be judged. And so even grades required these kind of, right. these kind of ideas of what black masculinity looks like and should be able to achieve. I remember when I got into certain schools, some of my teachers didn't believe it. I remember when I applied to certain schools, some of my white teachers and guidance counselors said, whoa, I don't know if you should really be looking at it. Like, well, why not? I have scores that I should, so why are, you, why are yeah. you projecting a judgment onto me of which school would be inappropriate for me to, to even send an application to? These things are real in interpersonal interactions. Also, last point about this, when I got to Georgetown and I was around kids coming from Andover and Stuyvesant and schools that have a culture of teaching students how to be good at school, I realized that I didn't know you were supposed to go and mm -hmm. seek out teachers in certain ways at office hours and ask certain questions that signal that you know how school yeah. works. Those factors come into your grades. And when you come up in high schools yeah. like that, you already know that four years earlier, six years earlier. So the idea that grades um, yeah. actually offer like a better window, uh, I think it's a joke. Also, some people are straight A students at really terrible schools. You know, like, let's be honest. Yes. An A yes. is not an A is not an A yes. is not an A. So. Right. Which it's always grades, comparing grades, it's always apples to oranges because of that reason. Is it 3.7 at this school versus 3.4 at that school, which ridiculous. is so, very hard to say. It's funny how our lives dovetailed, though, because as we mentioned on the podcast last week, we both ended up at Georgetown. We both ended up at Georgetown at about the same time, though we did not know each other while we were there. And it's uh, it's interesting for you to you know talk about the SAT as you know a test that didn't know exactly. what you were wearing when you took the test, right? It didn't know that you were wearing Timberlands and an NWA shirt or whatever. I don't know what you wore. Did you have cornrows Actually, back then? I just realized this is one thing that I did wear. This is the only thing that fits me still because I was so upset. It was small when I bought it. I used to wear massively oversized clothes, but this is a beloved sweater from my high school days. Um, but I wore like massive Jinko jeans. I mean, I'm from New Jersey. I wore Timberland boots, Versace yeah, sunglasses to class. I mean, if I were a biology professor, I wouldn't, I wouldn't really take me seriously either. I was wearing Versace <laughs> sunglasses that I had turned into prescription lenses. It looked ridiculous because I was living a BET fantasy yeah. of, a, of a rap video. Uh, yeah. It's so funny to think of you like that then. And then meanwhile, a thousand miles south of you in Virginia, I am at a conservative public high school with long hair <laughs> and a sonic youth shirt and like ripped jeans doing the the exact same problem, except that I think that the gra the mediocre grades my teachers gave me were totally fair because I was not doing a good job. I only I only ended up at Georgetown because I transferred in. I transferred in on the oh, strength well, of my too. college grades from University of Oregon when I went. When oh, I was, go Ducks. Uh, there, there's, nothing, there's nothing wrong with but, that. Uh, there's yeah. nothing wrong with taking a year to actually acclimate to the college environment and then transferring to a school that you think better suits you. Oh, but you know, it, it's exactly like you said. It's like no one knows what you're wearing when you're taking the SAT test. There was a time when we thought that that was the height yeah. of equality. I'm thinking about, you know, the recent disputes Absolutely. over um, for like the New York Philharmonic, right? That you needed to have a curtain mm -hmm. so that judges assessing the, the playing quality of musicians couldn't say, I don't think that woman played as well as that man. You just are playing, but it's just a piano playing behind a curtain and they can judge how well the instrument is being played. That move allowed many more women to get into the game than had been in the past when it was subjective. Now there have been arguments that I think are not so mm -hmm. dissimilar from the argument to get rid of the SAT, that the, that the screen's got to come down. We actually need to see the whole person playing the piano because there's not enough minorities getting yeah. through that blind screen. Yeah, I, I, think, I think you are getting to what is the basic disagreement here, which is that you have people who like objective processes where to the extent that you can measure something, and we acknowledge that, you know, especially when you're talking about college, it's difficult to measure aptitude, measure ability to succeed in college, but you do the best you can. Objective measures versus people who just want to go, <laughs> fuck all that. Just hire based on, you know, whatever, yeah. whatever traits yeah. I decide are the right ones to hire on, you know, whether it be gender or race or, you know, other, other factors. And uh, yeah, I, I, I am pretty decisively, though it should be said, not entirely, there's always an asterisk, but pretty decisively in the, let's do it objectively. Yeah. yeah. And let's try to do something that other countries do anyway. pretty well uh, with similar resources and even fewer resources than we have. Let's actually like try to make a social system where 
students have and, and citizens have opportunity from a young age so that, you know, their life doesn't come down to what they do at age 16 or 17 on a standardized test. But let, let's try to actually have universal pre-K and things like this. Like, let's have like portable daycare. Let's have yeah. actually like decent public schools for all that aren't dependent on how much taxes your town takes in. I mean, just simple things that could allow more people yeah. to flourish that we refuse to do. And then we try to say, like, let's just like wing it, take down the measures and just try to like, you know, make up for all of these wrongs that have preceded a person's arrival at the application process. It's a ridiculous, it's a ridiculous way of trying to engineer society. Yeah, I agree. It should not, it should not be used as a cheat. You do right. actually need to fix society, not rig things on the back end and go, oh, we fixed it. No, you need to yeah. actually fix it for real. Completely agree. Hey, should we talk about Ron DeSantis in Ukraine? I think that we should. Let's do it. Can we? Because let me, let me, let me say this. We're not, neither you nor I are capable of delineating the exact right path forward on Ukraine. We both, we covered this in episode one. We're both cheering for Ukraine. We're both cheering for Ukraine in this one. But exactly what that means in terms of U.S. involvement, that can be hard to describe. What's a little easier to see here is what's going on politically. So here's what happened this week. Ron DeSantis put out a statement that he had read on Tucker Carlson's show. So right away, you're getting a sense for the flavor of statement that DeSantis is putting it out because he's putting it out on Tucker Carlson, who's like the most pro-Russia public figure out there. And uh, this statement basically laid out DeSantis's thoughts on Ukraine at the moment, it should be said, because they do seem to be somewhat different from his very hawkish pro-Ukraine positions he has staked out previously. Let me read this in part. In part, the statement says, while the U.S. has many vital national interests, securing our borders, addressing the, the crisis of readiness with our military, achieving energy security and independence, and checking the economic, cultural, and military power of the Chinese Communist Party, becoming further entangled in a territorial dispute between Ukraine and Russia is not one of them. Thomas, I think this is quite clearly Ron DeSantis trying to take some of Trump's base away from him. Because Trump is about as pro-Russia of an American politician as you can find. This is, I think, DeSantis trying to steal some people who like that about Trump. Do you read yeah, the same Yeah, I think way? that's a fair assessment. Um, and to the extent that it's bringing a politician who potentially could be capable of averting the absolute catastrophe of a second presidency, a second Trump presidency, then I would say I'm almost willing to say I'm for it. Um, because I think that as bad as any outcome in Ukraine could be, it would actually be worse, not just for Americans, but for the global order for Trump to get back in office. So as I think about DeSantis doing what's he, what he's got to do, messaging how he's got to do it, if it actually is to the end of staving off the resurgent Donald Trump, I'm almost willing to, willing to just grit my teeth and bear it. Um, with that said, I find myself in the weird position of kind of missing neocons, you know, just the, <laughs> people I could at least say, I think patriotic. Go on. You know, I think that they actually believe that some things are better than other things, as opposed to this new type of like position from the right, which is like almost like, again, the horseshoe, like cultural relativism or who's really to say, who's really to say, well, yeah. Putin never called me a racist. Yeah. And like, actually, I think I like Putin better than Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden. And like, who's really to say? Yeah, I'll tell you the, the part of this statement that really jumps out at me is calling, I'll read the words again, uh, interest involved becoming further engaged in a territorial dispute between Ukraine and Russia. Territorial disputes. It's like, who could, who can say? Who can say where that border should be? You know, this is this is an internationally recognized border. Territorial They've dispute. They've got their side and the Ukrainians have their side. And, you know, it's like, it's far be it for me to say. Who could say? I, I think, but for what it's worth, I think you're right about neocons. And I, I, I do not want to see them come back. But you are correct. Yeah, they I were. think they were patriots. When I think of Dick Cheney, Paul Wolfowitz, like they were patriots. They weren't, you wouldn't argue that they were actually <laughs> really, really soft on the other side. I mean, right. the and opposite, he, really was true. It, it, you're right that it is very strange to have this element of American politics where it's like, you maybe, you think Putin's kind of cool? <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah, I just, I, that's a very weird place for a substantial portion of Americans to be arguing from or to be voting from. Uh, that Putin might be not it, it, as it, bad it, as the other party that were, that were going to 
bowls against. I mean, it's a terrible yeah. American tradition. That's bonkers. That's and it, by the way, in, in case people think we're manufacturing this out of whole cloth, let me read a quote from Tucker Carlson, who has banged this drum pretty loudly. From an episode last year, he said, Tucker Carlson said, it may be worth asking yourself, since it is getting pretty serious, what is this really about? Why do I hate Putin? Has Putin ever called me a racist? Has he threatened to get me fired for disagreeing with him? <laughs> Which is, it is saying like, okay, Putin, whatever you think of him. It's literally, we're worse. back on. My God. It's not as bad as wokeness. <laughs> it's insane. It's insane. Well, at least Putin's not woke. That's insane. It's like, <laughs> that's now the metric for judging international relations. And it is. I mean, Vladimir Putin became yeah. a kind of icon on the right for defending a kind of white virility and masculinity or so-called. Uh, and, you know, taking a hard heteronormative yeah. stance against kind of effete, decadent European-American liberalism. And that actually, before the invasion... Mm -hmm. fr fr Frenchmen like yourself. Let's say just, let's like just say it. French, <laughs> like, you know, Francophiles like myself. <laughs> Frenchmen. We became kind of celebrated before the invasion by a segment of the alt-right and people like this who thought that he was defending Euro-Christian values and heteronormative values. And he was like the last bulwark against yeah. wokeness. I mean, we're back on that crap. It's, it is actually, you know, and the strangest thing about arguing from the center is I've had people essentially putting these criticisms on me from the left. But, you know, I try to just be consistent and fair. Um, there is such a thing as like the, the, the mind virus that actually makes you see the threat of wokeness around every corner and to actually get into situations where you think Vladimir Putin yeah. starting the first land war on the European continent since World War II is better than pronouns being like in people's emails, you know? It's, it's a crazy place yeah. we're at Yeah, now. I you said mind virus. I think that's a good way to put it. I, I, I try to keep myself calibrated because I am someone, you know, on the left, center left, however you want to characterize it, who does, you know, talk about... Again, I, wokeness is not my preferred term. I will say the mm -hmm. religious left or, you know, uh, left illiberalism, whatever phrase you want to use, wokeness is never my preferred phrase. But I do think there are things to be worried about there. I do write about them a fair amount. I actually write about them more than I might because I think that's where the interesting discussions are. I think that's where the interesting debates are. The discussion we just had about the SATs, right. I think these are things we need to parse. Whereas... Uh, a lot of, you know, it's like right. Marjorie Taylor Greene does something. I'm not sure I need to spend my life reacting to Marjorie Taylor Greene. I'm pretty sure I know what I think about that lady. So I, I do talk about those things because I think they're worth talking about. But yes, it is very important to keep yourself calibrated, to keep things in perspective. And when you are thinking wokeness is a bigger problem than Vladimir Putin, who rolled tanks across an international border like the bad old days, I think that is a clear sign that you yeah, have lost uh, a lot. It's interesting, though. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, sorry, go with ahead. the caveat that if you have to get that message out there to prevent Donald Trump coming back to power, I might just say that there are no good options here. But <laughs> okay, well, that, well, that's okay. That, that's that's interesting, though. That's interesting, though, because you're sort of it, it's a mm -hmm. dangerous game, right? Because we agree that a second Trump term would be a very, very, very bad thing. I have said, certainly on my blog, on various podcasts, I'll say it again here, I prefer you know, any, Repub any Republican who will respect the basic boundaries of liberalism, which is, you know, open debate, free discussion, freedom of the press, extremely important, and just accept the results of the election. I prefer that candidate to Trump, and I have no qualms about saying it. I really will be rooting for that person. Ron DeSantis, I, I gotta say, on free speech, Ron DeSantis' no, scorecard is real bad. bad at this moment. And we talked about this in episode one. He is not distinguishing himself as a defender of free speech. Will he accept the results of the election if he loses? You know, time will tell. We will find out a lot about Ron DeSantis as the primaries unfold. I do think it's extremely disturbing that there is this element of the Republican Party, which, as, as you said, it's sort of this Christian, masculine, anti-woke thing that's, it's, it's Putin, it's Viktor Orban, it's Marine Le Pen, and then in our country, it's Trump, sort of in that, yeah, Christian nationalist something, white something area. I struggle for words quite clearly. It's fucked up that there's there are people who want to vote oh, for that. Very much so. Yeah. And it sounds like you're saying if you can capture some of that and beat Trump, worth it. Am I reading you right? Well, I'm saying Trump is such a singular perversion of uh, our politics and such an unstable 
and really like like sui generis threat to global stability and our standing in the world that I think that even racism and 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 xenophobia and a really disgusting political culture even playing into that but preventing him specifically from taking power again is the better choice of two terrible choices. And when you mention someone like Le Pen, mm-hmm. she's pretty bad, but I mean, she looks positively really delightful compared to Donald Trump. And, you know, she actually has a like limit for what <laughs> she can do in terms of, you know, saying crazy shit. Like Donald Trump has no limit. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I would say that even Le Pen doesn't, say quite as disturbing things as Tucker Carlson can say. She's actually tacked more to the middle than where Carlson is willing to go. Right. She certainly, she certainly, for people who don't know French politics, uh, and, you know, Thomas lives in France part-time, so I'm, I'm inclined to take his word for things. She has tacked to the yeah. center substantially, and is certainly farther to the center than her oh, dad was Oh, very much so, shot, uh, to the point where he was, you know, rooting for other candidates against her. But, um... You know, Victor Orban is really more of the disturbing model, I think, uh, for what DeSantis kind of wants to style himself as, using the power of the state to bring, to rein in private corporations, the media, to dictate what books can be. I mean, I think DeSantis is actually quite a threatening guy, but we know what Trump is. And so I think just knowing what Trump is, he will always be the more disturbing possibility. (laughs) He's one of the all-time greats. He's one there's of the really all-time nothing, greats in terms comparable. of being There's just terrible. nothing. I mean, he, he, he just, he, he, the, I, the, I will be. I, Donald Trump would not even pretend in advance of the election to commit to accepting the results of a free and fair election. He wouldn't even do that basic thing. Yes. Uh, for the Yes. And what he did was the most foreseeable consequence of someone's beliefs ever. He telegraphed it from miles and miles away that he was going to not accept the election if he lost. I will be very bummed out if we end up with the Republican Party, and we might already have it, where being Trumpist, even if you are not Donald Trump, is a requirement to win the nomination. If we get a version of DeSantis that does all the terrible illiberal things that Trump did, like, you know, Trump was always trying to throw his weight around to get the press to do what he wanted him to do. He was trying to, you know, influence mergers because he didn't like CNN and things like that. Like, that's bad stuff. I don't want to see that just become the norm. Ron DeSantis is not covering himself in glory in that regard. And God, if the contesting an election that's anywhere close just becomes the norm, I, boy, that's bad news. I was happy that there were not big problems with that in 2022. But that is also that's also why I'm not prepared to say, well, I like well, DeSantis, you know, I don't like him, but he's still better than Trump because it's sort of DeSantis well, is going to tell us. Still, who he is. So it's TBD. I will say there's plenty of room, plenty of room to be better than Trump and still. Oh, yeah, 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 that. yeah. I, I, that's basically where I am. And then, and then we've got, you know, yeah. what's going on on the left? I mean, what type of candidate is going to save us from either of these two gentlemen? You know, uh, so that's 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 a discussion for another time. We, that, yeah, that is the. Uh, let's leave that for another time. Hey, let's talk about something that doesn't sure. really matter. How about that? You put this is sort of our who's Thomas fighting with on Twitter this week. Well, I, I think there, there was really a fight was it? it was a poll that you put out. Oh, okay. Well, then why, why don't you describe? I this just poll asked people which they thought was worse, which was more useless, which was more difficult to be excited about: the Grammys or the Oscars, the night of the day of the Oscars. I think, and it seemed that it was. 55.5% uh, to 44.5% that the Grammys are worse than the Oscars. And, you know, I'm inclined to to agree with that. I think both are unwatchable. I haven't watched either program in <laughs> a very long time. I did like that Chris Rock Netflix special. And I did think again about that was the only time I've seen anything on the Oscars that I can remember <laughs> in decades that, you know, that actually like... <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was like must see TV. Uh, other than that, you know, I, I, yeah, they're just worthless kind of events. I, I talked about this with, with some friends, and they uh, the one point that came up was that at least like uh, you can be interested in what people are wearing. I guess uh, women are dressed pretty interestingly at the Oscars, <laughs> more interestingly than the Grammys. It's more of a thing. I think the after parties might be better at the Oscars. But uh-huh. are we moving towards a future where neither of these things really can command, a, you know, a significant slice of the... Will Joe Rogan just have a bigger audience than, than the Grammys or the Oscars going forward? 
I mean, it seems like that's the way. Uh, possibly. Well, and the future may have arrived. We may already be there. Although the they're numbers up, for the Oscars snap, were up this, after many, snap. many years have been going that down. That makes me down, kind of pilled. So maybe my friends in the, in the WhatsApp <laughs> text group that swear that the slap was something that uh, the Oscars uh, put Rock and Smith up to is legit. Maybe that's the only way they could keep uh, an audience coming back. You think people watched again this year? I think that was the somebody slap would get smacked. Yeah. <laughs> it could have been. Boy, now I'm, now I'm wondering who they thought was going to get slapped and who they thought would do the slapping. It could have been certainly like you knew in Jimmy Kimmel's monologue, he was going to reference the slap and it was going to be kind of fun. And he did, mm-hmm. and it kind of was. I didn't, I didn't watch, watch the, the um, I, I didn't watch, watch it. Either, I didn't watch the Oscars because I just asked, the, I just ran the poll. A few thousand people responded that the Grammys suck more. Here we are. <laughs> what do you think? So, so, and I didn't watch it either, but I, I did watch Jimmy Kimmel's monologue. That was pretty funny. I mean, I watched it like on YouTube the next day. What do you think is driving the results of that poll? Why do people think the Grammys are even worse. Because I think that, well, I was going to say that, you know, you can't even, you know, have confidence in in the process of giving out awards, but can you really have confidence in giving out awards at the Oscars either? No. The Grammys are boring, I think. Now we get so much, we get so much, you don't need to wait for an award ceremony to come around to see like your, your, the biggest stars perform or to get a glimpse of something that I think in a previous era, you did need to wait for just 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 to see a big performance now you know you can just go on youtube and you've got tons of stuff to look at i think it's just the the, the hold that that type of television has on us is 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 no longer what it was or the television culture that mm-hmm. we're all supposed to be looking at something at the same time that you know that no longer is where we mm-hmm. are i mean that it, those all seem like plausible explanations is music also kind of suck <laughs> what about this is music more subjective than movies because there, there are a lot of movies that, like, most people will agree, like, that's a pretty good movie. Never everybody, but there are a lot of movies that, you know, do a lot of business, and most people agree, you know, that's a pretty good movie. Mm-hmm. Jurassic Park. Like, most people have seen Jurassic Park. are like, yeah, it's worth my two hours. Music, it's so subjective. There are artists that, like, their next album comes out, and, like, you already know, like, yeah, I'm not going to listen to that. It's just it's not my thing, 100%, not what I'm in the market for. Are Is music more subjective than movies? And if so, does that make the grammys more pointless than the oscars because the the grammys you already know like it's gonna be a bunch of people who do music that's an interesting point but i think that people are consistently frustrated with the with the best picture selections right isn't that like the the one thing you can count on is Mm -hmm. like nobody thinks that the the best very often the movie that wins best picture is not what people actually think is the is the deserving uh candidate i don't know music I think there's something about the Grammys where it's out of touch with where the culture is in a way. Maybe what you're getting at is more like the Grammys. It took so long for them even to recognize that, you know, the most urgent and and compelling and kind of influential music in the country and the world was hip hop. I mean, they were so slow to that. And even still, they haven't given many best albums like overall to a, to a hip hop artist. And there's just been like a travesty of prioritizing mm-hmm. a kind of outmoded um, form of pop music or other types of um, genres, as opposed to recognizing where the culture really is right now, um, that, that maybe is more frustrating. Right. Um, yeah, the, 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 maybe it's genre. Maybe well, genre is really a, the issue a, that, that makes the Grammys suck genre. so much. Well, if it's if it's genre, I got a similar bone to pick with the Oscars, which is that comedies never get right, anything exactly. at the Oscars. Never have, still don't. Now. These days, comedy movies don't exist. This is a trend in movies that I'm not sure if everyone has noticed, but I um, I wrote a, a Substack post at one point where I crunched the numbers on this. Comedy movies are not a thing anymore. It has gone straight down for 20 years. The you, It's actually something you can measure. Thankfully, there is data on this. You know, Of the movies that are made every year, what percentage are, co- are comedies? It's less than half of what it was 10 years ago. So, okay, comedies don't exist. But even when they did exist, they never got any oscar love whatsoever mm-hmm. even like the great ones you know like big lebowski, yeah, big lebowski final task should have been like, like these ever did anything two about. years in a row or something like that the big lebowski is better than that yeah that has lived on in culture but yeah, but yeah. some of the people were saying so they've got in response to the poll was that the grammys are worse because the oscars still at least have some semblance of artistic credibility which is completely gone from the kind of pop music centric Harry Styles Grammy bullshit. Who who won? Did Harry Styles did. win Grammys this year? Uh, I didn't watch, but didn't he give his award. Okay. To female uh, fem- to female artists in general, isn't that what happened? 
Can we check that? Oh, Harry, I'm sure they were touched. Charles gave his award. I'm sure they were touched. Man, I don't know. Does it even Why matter? Do <laughs> we even need to look that up? It's, if he didn't, he surely might as well does have. not. Although I am interested, I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna Google Harry Styles gives. Harry Styles Grammy. is my daughter's. Gonna, I need to find out if this is actually artist. So I feel a little bit bad uh, trashing him. She really, she and her classmates. Well, does she listen to this podcast? She's probably gonna listen to the Ronda segment, Ronda Santos Ukraine to segment, right? But um, nine because she loves old? Harry Styles. Okay, yeah. Now I should not be listening to the same music as a nine-year-old I mean, girl, right? So the fact that I don't listen to Harry Styles or anything about him. This this is the way Except things should sometimes be. Sometimes right? these nine year olds are on to game. Like they'll listen to Travis Scott. <laughs> they're listening to stuff that I don't think they should be listening to. They're listening to Central C. Uh, <laughs> they're listening to Doja Cat and stuff. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's kind of you know who it's it's weird out. You know who I listened to when I was when I was nine years old? I'll give you a hint. He's a close personal friend of yours. Of mine. <laughs> yes. Come on, man. We talked about this last week. Uh-huh. MC Hammer, the fourth face. On Black Intellectual Mount Rushmore, <laughs> when you met with you was yourself, yeah, Camille. Coleman Hughes, Camille Foster, and MC Hammer was the fourth member of the group. I, I loved MC Hammer. I was hugely into into Hammer time. Oh, he was, was too legit. That was a quit. banger. That, that was a big check, song. Yeah, I think, he was. Man, we're ba- we're talking about MC Hammer. Should we wrap it? I think. I, yeah, I think when you're talking about MC <laughs> Hammer, it's time to wrap it up. Hey. Have a good, have a better week next week than you had this week. I'm interested to see who you get in fights with and whether we'll find the one definition thing is of wokeness. Exciting. One thing that's exciting is we don't know who that next fight is going to be with, but we know we know it's coming. It could be anybody, but you know who is not going to be probably is MC Hammer because you two are like two pieces of pot. All right, man. Take care. Talk to you next week.